I'm Adam Epstein, and I'm a dirty moderate. Dirty moderates, hello, and welcome to another episode. This country's drowning in partisanship. This country is subsumed and consumed, actually, by toxicity. And everybody feels this way, who at least I say everybody who cares about the fate of democracy. So we're always wondering, why, why, why? And that brings me to today's guest, Jim Marone. How the hell are you? I am great. Glad to be on. Hello, moderates. Dirty moderates. Hey, Adam. I want to tell everybody something. So those listeners who follow me, and and many people may know, and, I, and many people may not know, um, I am a graduate uh, of Brown University, where I got my master's in 2017 American Studies. Uh, Jim Marone, better known as James Marone by his book, uh, is a professor of political science and public policy at Brown University. Um, the only uh, lamentable thing is I didn't have you as a professor while I was there. Oh, uh, yeah. Too bad. It would have been fun. But uh, uh, now you're the professor. Now, yes. But no, I learned so much. And so Jim is joining us today for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, he has written an astonishing new book. And I say astonishing because of the breadth of its scholarship and the accessibility of it. So to put that in English, this is a readable book, guys, on American political history. The book is called Republic of Wrath. I love the title. How American Politics Turned Tribal from George Washington to Donald Trump. Again, I welcome Jim Marone to Dirty Moderate. Jim, let's go back to the beginning. I know you're born in Rio de Janeiro. Let's start oh, there. That is the real beginning. I thought you were going to go to George Washington, but I, I grew up in Rio. My dad was an American uh, businessman. He came back from World War II, went off, to, went off to Brazil. He met my mom, who was escaping World War II in Brazil. So I grew up a stranger in a strange land. I'd, I'd never been to the United States, but I wasn't really Brazilian either. I could speak Portuguese, but, you know, people took one look at me and said, well, he's not, he's not, he's not really anything. And then when I was nine years old, uh, suddenly we came to the States, which was cool. I just love it. You know, television and Coke and glazed donuts <laughs> and all the things a nine-year-old loves. Right. But the place was a little strange. I was trying to figure it out. And so all my life, I've been writing books. I'll just give you one quick story about what was strange about it. One day, my family goes to a picnic on Staten Island, Wolf Pond Park, and we are walking down the beach. And my younger brother, who is always a very astute observer of the things around him, says, Hey, Dad, how come all the white people are there and all the black people are here? Wow. And that wouldn't have happened in Brazil. Lots of problems in Brazil, lots of poverty, lots of inequality. But you wouldn't have seen people sorted uh, in a public place by race. But the thing that stuck with me to this day, all these years ago, was my father got nervous. He hadn't noticed. And he said, oh, yeah, shut up. You'll get you'll, you'll get a knife in you. Oh, and I'm like, whoa, huh? What? Where was this? Where'd you say in the States? Where this were was you? on Staten Island. Wow. You know, and everybody was come. I look around and everybody's barbecuing and, you know, it's the early 60s. Everybody's, it's their families everywhere. That the, No one looked the least bit threatening, but there was a racial cast. You cross the invisible line and you were in a different racial world. And, you know, all my books, but this one partially yeah. is uh, an effort to try to figure out, I, you know, I, I, I never, f what is it that makes this country, these people take? Because I loved being in the United States. It was really an exciting place. It was the John F. Kennedy era. It was the Martin Luther King era. And 
you know, I'll tell you one other story. When um, my first political memory is from 1963, I come downstairs, my mom and dad are watching TV and my mom is crying. So notice both these are very intense for a nine-year-old to see the, their parents, and now 11-year-old, see their parents intense is like, a, it's, it's a big deal. My mom was crying. What's going on? They're showing pictures of the March on Washington. And they're showing little bits of video of um, Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream. And my mom, who's new to America, is, is weeping. So I'm thinking, wow, this is an amazing country. My dad, rock Republican, only voted Democrat once in his life. And he says, well, you know, son, we've had a kind of racial problem. This guy's going to help us figure it out. And so as a kid, I believe, oh, you know, it's, we're going to figure it out. And uh, so the failure to figure it out is is something that's that's haunting. I mean, I think it haunts my generation. It haunts the country. Uh, so so that those early memories kind of set the set the the goalposts for me. Yeah, I mean, and that's a good segue for us. So here you are uh, with a mother who's a Democrat, a father who's a rock rib Republican. Again, a Republican, 1963, before the Civil Rights Act, all of that you get into in your book, saying we do have a racial problem. And the reason I want to go there is, is and we're going to talk about a lot of things, I'm going to let you, of course, explain this to people. The parties, the Republican and Democratic parties, certainly the Republican Party, whose moral and philosophical collapse is absolutely tragic to me in our two-party democracy. But um, the parties of yore are not the parties of today. And so let, let, let's touch it on that because I think that yeah. I, I want to say before I, I let you answer that, though, the one thing I came up with when I was reading your book, Your American Political History, is I thought that people don't understand paradoxical partisanship. You yeah. know what I mean? The paradoxes of how, how not only have the parties have changed, but how the regional aspects of the parties were so different, how you might have had – in the Senate, let's say in the 60s, you might have 30, 40 moderate, dirty moderates, liberal Republicans, conservative, and I mean moderates. I don't mean segregationist Democrats and right-wing Republicans. I mean the sort of mainstream liberal Humphrey type of Democrat and then an Everett Dirksen, you know, and those kind of people shape the nation, reshape the nation. About Everett Dirksen, the Republican leader, they used to say, uh, Mr. Dirksen, are you loquacious? A thousand words or less, please. Uh, but he the Civil Rights Act reflects him. People don't know this. The Republican leader, as much as anybody else in the country, he just said, OK, I have to have these changes. The Democrat, the northern Democrats, said, yeah, yeah, fine. So the dirty moderates gave us on both parties. But let me get to your, your real question, Adam. So he, what I, the reason I wrote this book, uh, the sort of personal history aside that you that you led with, very few people lead with that, Um you know, you look at it, it's nastiness, violence, fraud, uh, twisting election rules, bashing the government, bias in the media, all that stuff. What's new? You know, so I wanted to go back all the way to the very first contested election in 1800 and say, what is different about today? Fist fights in Congress, not different. Uh, crazy media, not different. Uh, violent coups, not different. I mean, remember, uh, Burr kills Hamilton, shoots him dead. Thaddeus Stevens was beat on the Senate floor with it by a stick, wasn't he? By Charles Sumner, is that That's right? That's right. That's right. A guy gets up there and starts beating him, and he's he's locked in. He tries to get up, and he can't get up. He gets 30, 30 slams in that three years. He was, uh, he was, uh, he was, he had to be in bed. He was traumatized. Um, and you know what? The stick broke. 
and this South Carolina congressman, a guy named Brooks, they, uh, he got scores of new canes. So what, you know, as you go through the whole history, what's different? And here's the thing. And as you say, it's paradoxical parties. So what's clear is the two huge battles in American history. First, race. We have been screaming about race from day one. Um, if you go back to the 1800 election, what are they screaming about? The, there's a revolution in Haiti. The Haitian slaves take over. They're the Adams administration, 1800, Adams administration. They make a treaty with the, with the Haitians. The Democratic Party, known as Democratic Republicans, but it's basically the Democratic Party, led by Jefferson, say, oh, my God, what's going to happen when these ships steered by sl former slaves come to South Carolina. They're going to wander around. They were panicked. So that first election, slavery, a race, big deal. White white supremacy, big deal. Big deal. And, and let it be known, and you're going to talk about this, obviously, with as we go on. It's such a great point. The Democratic Party, which originally was the really Democratic Republican Party, which is a sort of Jeffersonian agrarian party. I mean, it's all changed. But they were historically, and I know liberals listen up. Okay, partisan. I'm not. A, I'm an independent. Okay, I'm. I'm. I'm not a partisan. I mean, I've. I've had very few Republicans I can vote for because of where we're at. But here comes a big point, though. You're right. You're going to make a major point. Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy, based in the South. Party white supremacy. They were the. So when they're running, and I'm going right back to the very first election that's contested. When they're running, they're screaming that the. Pre, pre, uh, previous, uh, the predecessors to the Republican Party, known as Federalists, they're going to unleash the they're going to unleash the racial whirlwind. They're going to have treaties. They actually sent three ships over to help uh, Toussaint Louverture, the the head. And it drove the Democrats nuts. Haiti was France was uh, French occupied. French occupied, and they rebelled, and then the English tried to come in and take it over, and the Spanish, because it's a very profitable colony, and the poor revolutionaries, they had to beat off the Spanish, they had to fight off the English, then they had to fight off the French, and at the end of that revolution, by the way, Napoleon finally just gives up. So tens of thousands, he, the English lost more people in Haiti than they lost in the American Revolution, wow. trying to take it over. And so when, 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 when Napoleon finally gives up, he just says, Okay, forget it. I'm not going to have a new world empire. I just give up. I've lost too many troops. So he goes to Jefferson. He says, you want my land? The, the Louisiana purchase was made possible by the slaves of Haiti. No one knows that. I couldn't believe it when I read that. It's, they were such great fighters that they beat the Napoleon, uh, Napoleon armies, and we got the Louisiana purchase as a result. Right. Uh, without that slave uh, revolt, we don't know when we might not have acquired that layer. We wouldn't have acquired, we wouldn't have acquired in 1803. If, um, if Napoleon had been able to exterminate the slaves that existed, take over the island, he would then have used that to launch an invasion of Engl what he called the English North America. He wanted to spread the French Empire. And so his idea was use Haiti as a base. But the Hades defeated him. So there's one side of the story. Race. And for many, many years, the Democratic Party is the party of white supremacy. So another side to the story. What's the other big battle going all the way back to 1800? Immigration. The immigrants are coming over. The This time, the Federalists were pretty good on race. By the standards of the day, they were really enlightened. 
They were horrible about the immigrants. They hated the immigrants. The Democrats, Jefferson and those guys, they love the immigrants. They're signing them up to vote when they're still seasick from the sea voyage. The immigrants come in, the Democrats go, you're Democrats. And they're like, oh, okay. And by the way, I want listeners to know this, and James, buttress my point, I think you will. You know, the later sort of evolution of this, right? The dem- big Democratic Party machines, Boss Tweed, buying voters with turkeys, meaning they, the, the, originally the Jeffersonians wanted that, um, that kind of patronage, you know what I mean? And the Democrats practiced that with immigrants, you know, in New York, all the places yeah. that, 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 you know, Pennsylvania, all over, I, Michigan, where immigrants yeah. landed yep. from the yep. from Germany yep. and Ireland and Wales and all over, you know, it's kind of an vote early, vote often. Hey. Vote early. <laughs> so it's interesting to think about them then, you know, being a Southern segregationist party, even as we move in the 20th century, but having big city machines in the North and in the Midwest, which relied on Italian votes. Immigrant votes. And they love them. So check out what we've got. In 1800, in 1900, in 1920, it's one party sticks up for African-Americans. It's two big battles, race and immigration. One party, the Democrat, uh, the Republicans, they stick up for black voters. Black voters are almost 95 percent. They're almost exclusively Republicans. Party of Abe Lincoln. I mean, it was. I mean, you know. Absolutely. On the other side. The Democrats are the party of white supremacy, but they really push for immigrants. They are meeting the immigrants. They're helping the immigrants. They're fighting for immigrants. Meanwhile, the party of Lincoln, they hate the immigrants. They want to keep them from voting. So even Lincoln had nativists. Lincoln himself wasn't a nativist, but he used to write letters saying, I hope these nativists kind of calm down before 1860 because I don't want to repudiate them in public right? because I need them to vote for me. So- yeah, he they had they had their anti-immigrant crazies then, even though then, they were even though they were the Emancipation Party of African Americans. In 1890, there is the police chief of New Orleans gets killed. They round up all the Italians they can find. They round up 30 of them. They put a trial. No one saw it. The only piece of evidence is someone said they thought they heard the chief as he lay bleeding say Dagos. And so that was the only evidence. So the court throws it out. They they let the people loose. Immediately, the mob gathers and they hang 11 Italians. These fine 11 Italians, hang them. And the Pope actually, so, and the Democrats are running to protect the Italians. And the Republicans get on the floor of Congress and say, well, you got to admit, they're an inferior people. You, You know, it's bad to hang people, but you can't really blame them. So notice, Adam, you got one party saying, look, we're going to embrace black people and we're going to be good on race. But bad on immigration. We we had another party that says, no, no, we love immigrants. We'll do everything we can to help them. But hey, this is a white supremacy country. Yeah, I want to I want to ask one question about that. Actually, yeah. I, I fast forwarded in the history. I don't want people to. I yeah, we don't want to stay in eighteen hundred forever. No, no, no. But I, you know, obviously, you know, you have the there's a cross current of race and immigration, despite this partisan difference. You know, you have white Protestant America. They don't really like black people. They don't particularly want Jewish immigrants here either. Or, you know, my question, though, is why did the Democratic Party or the the Jeffersonian, what became the Democratic Party? Why did they like immigrants? Why were they tolerant of a foreign um, uh, group in the United States? in, 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 In other words, obviously, everything's politics. But why? Because they voted for them. And there's two reasons. Two reasons. One reason is at first they're coming from places that have been infected with the French Revolution. Jefferson loves them. So they're natural Democrats. 
later, and this is kind of a nasty story, but later immigrant groups come along and they very quickly figure out, wait, if I'm perceived as white, I'm in a majority. So immigrants who are, you know, no Irish need apply, they're horrible discrimination against the Irish, but they figure out very fast that if they assert whiteness, if they scream, I'm white, that that discrimination will diminish. So they're happy to join the Southerners in saying, and they're competing for jobs with black people. So they're that they're okay with racial hierarchy. So short answer votes that they were voting with the, uh, they were voting with their party and blacks are voting with Republicans. So everybody's, everybody's trying to protect their voters. Right. And then something really, really interesting happens. So we've got the culture wars are limited by this party break. So when we're screaming about race, one party's the bad guy. We're screaming about immigration, another party. So that puts the brakes on what we're seeing today. And then what really is interesting happens in the 20th century, all the so-called minorities head for the Democratic Party. And the most interesting part about it are the black voters. So they're Republicans. There have been like 20 people elected to Congress who are black, uh, mainly in, uh, during after the Civil War. Every single one of them are Republican. Few from the northern cities, everyone are Republican. The first Republican uh, ever elected to the Senate was Hiram Revels in Mississippi. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Republican. And, 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 and then... In 1932, there's a Great Depression. It really slams the black community. They suffer more than almost anybody. Right. And the Republicans are like, well, you're our, you're our people, but they're not doing anything for them. Right. And a few of the black newspapers start saying, you know what? It can't get worse than this. Let's vote for Roosevelt, see what happens. And everybody laughs at them. They say, don't you understand? This is the party of segregation. This is a party run by Southern senators. And the some of the Chicago, some of the black papers, particularly the one in Pittsburgh, says we don't care. We're, we're just and half the vote in Pittsburgh, a third of the black vote in Chicago, a third of the black vote in Harlem. They go for Democrats. It's like an earthquake. And Roosevelt figures this out and he goes, let's get that vote. And so the newspaper, you look at the newspapers of the day, they're mocking. They just think black people are so stupid. They're voting for the party of segregation. But more and more of the black people, they can vote in the North, remember, not in the South. It's about two million votes. They figured out very early on that, wait, if we start swinging votes, we'll be the swing vote because the North is very, very close between Republicans and Democrats. They figure out that they can be the swing vote in the Northern cities. So the Northern Republicans are desperately trying to hang on to the black vote because if the black vote abandons them, the North goes completely Democratic. And, um, and so they're trending more and more. Between 1932 and 1948, black voters go little and then a lot and then a lot more and then completely to the Democratic Party. And in the end, they kick out the white segregationists. So in 1948 convention, the white segregationists are so pissed off that when a black guy, with Truman, when a black guy gets up to give the invocation, a minister, they all walk out. They can't believe it. they're so angry. And um, and and all of a sudden, you've got to change the party from that day on, from 1948. What does Truman do before the election? He integrates the military. And it's not like it's Truman is this great liberal guy. I mean, he, he is pretty liberal, but but he sees I, I got to get all that black vote. What do I do? All right. I'm going to integrate the military. It's driven 
by black voters moving party between 40. And so we have the black vote is now democratic. And then all the immigrant groups begin to get stronger democratic because here's part two. In 1965, three months after the Voting Rights Act passes, black people are now solidly in the Democratic Party. Immigrants have been in the Democratic, but there aren't that many of them. Because in 1929, America shut the immigration gate. 1965, Kennedy's been assassinated. Johnson said, you know what? Let's open the gates. Let's let, let's, in honor of the fallen president, let's let immigrants come to America again. There were no immigrants coming. Congress says, yeah, sure, why not? No one thought about, you know, when people thought about immigrants, they thought about their grandparents. Of course. So no, everybody's like, oh yeah, sure, fine. And, and to your, to your, to your point, and it's also intertwined with this, um, with your um, with your argument, which is very true, you here you have race and immigration um, intertwined in a certain way because remember you only they only wanted Northern European immigrants when the doors were shut. Northern European immigrants could still come in, but other groups could not. It's a funny story. So this is one conservative congressman, as the law is going through. White Christian immigrants is what I meant. White Christian immigrants. So even though it's a small number, that's all who's coming. And he's worried that we're going to get people from Ethiopia, as he put it. So what he does is he changes the language. And he says, instead of having people coming from their skills, which was the first draft of the document, we're going to have family reunification. Now, the reason he did that was he thought, well, what we've got here now is Irish, Italians, Poles. We like those people. They're Christians. They're whites. And so he changes the law. And Johnson doesn't care. He just wants he just wants a win. So he doesn't pay much attention. Yeah, sure. That's what you want to do. So the law gets changed to family reunification because they want to keep it white. 1965, the door opens. What happens? 60 million immigrants come. The Irish are happy in Ireland now. Ireland's now, it's Italy. Those are now countries with, with a lot of wealth. They don't need, who's coming? People from poorer countries. And when a few people come, the way they changed the law made it easier for more people of the same family to come. They basically screwed themselves. And I, I, the other thing that's interesting, um, I, I read a, one of the books I did in graduate school, just in a, in a interdisciplinary seminar, was May Nye. I read a book called Impossible Subjects. I don't know if that's in your... Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Nye. Oh, yeah, sure. I sometimes make my students read that book. Yeah, and I learned something from it, which is also relevant uh, to this argument, is that even though they had shut the doors from whatever, 1925 to 65 at 40 years, exactly, yeah. Mexican laborers could come. I mean, there were Mexican, poor Mexicans could come in to be laborers. Is that right? Is my memory right? The only uh, controls on the southern border. Absolutely right. And they had control on the southern borders to make sure Asians weren't sneaking in with the with the Mexican laborers. But right. Mexican, no problem. They they didn't perceive that as a problem because, hey, who's going to pick the fruit? This is literally what they're saying on the floor of Congress. We just don't want Asians. Why? They're not Christian. Well, they always liked the big business, always liked cheap labor. They always like cheap labor. But when 60 million people suddenly come across between 1965 and 2000, all of a sudden, it's the world's biggest political issue. And if you watch, if you look, if you, you know, you green eye shades, you look at the at the at the voting results, uh, the Latino voters, they go Democratic big time. The Asian voters, they stay Republican. So the Asian voters, they vote for they vote for Bob Dole. There's no other group in the world that votes for Bob, Bob Dole beat Bill Clinton among the Asian voters in 1996. Oh, but nobody voted for Bob Dole. No one. 
But he, he had, but they see the Asian vote going down. Then 9-11 hits. The Bush administration calls and the Asian vote evaporates for Republicans. And so what you have, black vote goes over, all 60 million immigrants come and they all go into the same party. So for the first time, and this is the punchline of the book, for the first time in American history, one party has all the so-called minorities and the other party has the, the, the well, the white vote. 89% of people who vote Republican across the last 10 presidential elections call themselves white. So suddenly we've sorted on the, the most dynamite issues in American history. The parties are now mainlining them. That's true by 2004. And that's when it all takes off. And there's one final twist to add to this. Yeah. In 2004, the Census Bureau, in its wisdom, makes a very controversial assertion. It says the white white ethnics will be a minority in the United States starting sometime ar around the year 2060. And for people under 21, sometime around the year 2020. That is it's not clear that's true. A lot of demographers say, well, you know, how do you define white? Um, you know, uh, Ted Cruz's two blonde haired, blue eyed kids. They're one fourth Cuban. They don't count as white. But people heard that. So not only have we got all the so-called minorities on one party and all the white people on another party, anybody who has any 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 bit of racial fear in them, that fear is now on steroids because there's the Census Bureau, you know, the boring eye shade people saying, hey, white guys, you're going to be like 39 percent of the population before your uh, grandchildren are, 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 you know, old enough to be mar bar mitzvah or whatever, confirmed, right. whatever it is. And people freak out. They do. So that that's how we got here. So when people say, oh, it's so bad now, you know, people in Congress are practically practically punching one another. Nothing new. They used to shoot at one another with guns. A guy from the South used to say the only congressman without a gun and a knife in his pocket are those with two guns. So <laughs> that, you know, that's all. But now race and immigration are both being filtered in an era when people really believe that the basic demographics of this country are changing. Now, whether they're really changing or not is open to dispute, but that the country is changing. That's not that's not open to dispute. It doesn't, doesn't look the same as it did when when you were a kid or when I was a kid. No. Or when grandpa was a kid. I remember, right. I mean, I mean, it's so fascinating because you have a Republican um, party now that is largely nativist, anti-immigrant, right? That once uh, was pro-black and it's not that I, it's all part of the same thing. But if you think about it, the Democratic Party, which sort of was full of all these, not sort of, was full of segregationist white supremacists, we're happy to have immigrants who would vote for them because remember there was no existential panic that white Christian, white Christian or white Protestantism was going to be supplanted. So they could have the votes, right. And still have a, I don't know, white Protestant hegemony, you know, all they want to do is be like us. What's the problem? Right. Until, until, until the demography uh, transform. The demographic bomb hits. Now, it's still true. Most immigrants coming don't want to change the nation. They came here because they like what they saw. So, but that's not how it's playing out in the sort of great, uh, great racial fears. And, and something has to be said. Uh, I, I want to say something in favor of young Republicans, but, you know, politicians just learned early on 
that as Republicans, they became a minority party. They had several advantages in the Electoral College and so forth. But as we know, you know, the since 1988, the Republicans have won the popular majority once. So but but some politicians learned that if you scream race and scream immigration and say we're fighting for the for for, for your country, that delivered votes. So. You know, that just exacerbated it. And I know the dirty moderates are like, why? 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 He sounds like a, a dirty Democrat. No. So let me, let no, me we say. Have no, we have no partisan bias here. Listen, I, 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 as I said at the beginning of the, of the broadcast, uh, you know, most people know this. I'm genuinely, excuse me, genuinely. Oh, I'm genuinely a moderate. I'm generally voting blue. I have tremendous policy disagreements with the Democrats. The problem, though, is, is that I I believe that the current Trump Republican Party, I would even say it's devolved from the Republican Party, is a genuine threat to democracy. So I don't see a viable person, with the exception of a, somebody like Liz Cheney, who we endorsed, or Adam Kinzinger, who's leaving, or people who I think are, are Republicans in red areas that a Democrat wouldn't win in, but have maintained a commitment to truth. So for sure, and I want to get to, we have to talk a little bit about sort of the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah. danger of the Republican. But, you know, there's one thing that a lot of my students come up to me at Brown. And, you know, there's a few Republicans. It's a pretty liberal school, so there aren't many. But, you know, after class, they'll come up and they'll say, what do we do? And, I, you know, the line I give them is there are two strands running through the Republican Party. One is the strand that saw, hey, they're those Southern segregationists, saw in 1964, Southern segregationists, Northern John Birch Society hating immigrants. Let's combine them and let's, and you know, I hate to say it, it's Barry Goldwater. He, he saw that and he tried to win an election by combining those strands. So that's there. And Trump has really um, refined the call to that toxic brand, that brand that just is fearful of race and immigration. But, you know, there is a very um, honorable tradition in the Republican Party that goes back. And my, my students are less government, more liberty, strong military, strong values. By the way, that's uh, all my you're singing my song and not that Republican. But I have those what I guess they'd be now be libertarian credentials. What makes me a dirty moderate is I think there is such wisdom in the idea that a government is limited. And I say that because, and Democrats or my all my progressive friends don't get this. No, they're against the Biden administration introduces something called a board of a bureau of disinformation or whatever the hell this is, empowered by the Homeland Security Department. I understand it's to deal with migrant smuggling and Russian disinformation. The last thing that the, they they don't get it, they think that this is great because we're going to take on Fox News or whatever. The last thing a government unelected government bureaucracy should be doing is having having the power to determine what is true and what isn't. That now we're in Oceana. Now we're in Ministry of Truth Orwell. And Fox has run with this, but they're not wrong because again, only a government big enough would be able to do that. You see what I mean? So yeah. that's where I get queasy because should the government have enforced a pass all civil right? Of course, the New Deal, of course. I think that we before 1935, half the elderly died in poverty and they don't because of Social Security. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm pragma pragmatic, but at the same time, you know, a state that giveth does taketh away. And I'm not I'm not an ideologue about it, but I always worry that the Democrats want to legislate every single thing from the federal level that might not, A, have a solution at the federal level. It might also, Jim, have a solution. How about that? 
Yeah. So the so we need Republicans. We need center right people. We need Republicans to say, all right, our party is two. Let's be honest. Our party is two strands. One strand, libertarian, you've just articulated as 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 well as anybody can. And you could go on for an hour, but you know, hey. So there's the there's the racist strand and then there's the libertarian strand. And what Republicans need to do is say, okay, okay, we are gonna run, we're gonna reject the racist strand, we're gonna reject the nativist strand, and we're gonna we're gonna run. We're going to win over the black voters. We're going to win over the Latino voters. We're going to win over the Asian voters. We're going to really run on that. And we're going to stop and think what works in our ideology, in our beliefs that'll speak to those folks without going to white people and say, hey, worry about that. When the Republican Party, and I think I think the youngest generation is actually going to do this. Oh, wow. I think we just live long enough for the people who are under 25 to get to be old enough to run things. I think that's where they're going to go. I mean, I watch my students, you know, the three Republicans I have. That's all they want to do. The right. Republican- I imagine those are young people. Sorry to interrupt you. Imagine yeah, yeah. Those are young students, right, who obviously are at Brown University and not to not to uh, toot our own horn, but you, one would hope they're on the brighter side and not nativists, right? That they would, that they are, that they believe that there is this honorable conservative tradition to reclaim that is free of the taint of racism and nativism, right? Isn't that the whole? Yeah, and in fact, I'll make it even stronger. So let me leave Brown. Um, you know, I go around giving talks. I gave a talk at El Paso Community College. And on top of the syllabus in political science, it says this course in English. So there are very few, if any, native speakers in the room, including the faculty. Right. When I ask these kids what they believe, they're all Democrats. But when I ask them what they believe, a lot of them sound like Republicans. You know, they sa- they will say the sorts of things that you were just saying. We don't want government. We want to get ahead. We want to get rich. That's why we came to the United States. That's why we're here. I'm thinking, Republicans, are you listening? Every one of them will vote for you if you go after them. But if you, as long as you're being nativist, your ceiling, despite what, what happened in the last election, we're just looking looking at the latest numbers coming out, you know, you got to really make the move. So I actually think, ironically, I, I'm I'm a Democrat, I'm a liberal, uh, all that, but I think it's the Republican Party that has to save us by re-coming back into terms with just what you were talking about. I mean, I think the Democratic Party has to do some stuff, too. Listen, but- the Democratic Party has a tremendous amount of, as we were talking, as I also mentioned, noble ideas that I agree with. But I, I also think that the, the, the issue is, and your book, which talks about American political history as this competing binary of two parties and two parties, you know, even though they morphed and the Whigs went away and the Democratic Republicans became, you know, uh, Democrats, which then, you know, uh, led to the Republicans having a breach with race, the whole thing. Yeah. My my feeling is, is if we're going to be a two party representative republic or, or representative democracy, call it what you want, and we don't have we only have Democrats winning, we have no check. Let's just say that's what happens. No check on their power. State of California, where I uh, live, I live in LA. I'm not in LA at the moment, but that's where I live. And the state of California is run entirely by Democrats. They have super majorities. For me, I think the place is a disaster, Jim. I think that there are so many things they could be doing better. And the answer is always, well, we're just going to spend more money and tax you. It's like, okay, but homelessness is out of control. We have all sorts of, you can't afford to buy a house. I mean, again, 
not everything is, is, is causal. There's things that are correlative, obviously. But I guess what I'm saying is you've got to have a center-right alternative. Maybe it's the equivalent of the British Tories. I don't know. That, that allows people to say to the Democrats, we, we're in good faith with you, right? We want to help. Um, uh, we want to do affordable housing. But we know rent control, for example, doesn't work. So what we propose, but ideas that we have a market-based solution that would team up with government, public-private partnership, and we believe the government should work with X, Y, and Z to make it. I'm broad-stroking. Those yeah. conversations we're not having, we're not governing, and to me, as an independent, as a dirty moderate, that's what I want to hear. I don't want to be told that if the government doesn't do everything, the apocalypse is coming. That isn't true. I also don't want to be told that the government, you know, the old Ronald Reagan thing, the government, what's the worst nightmare is someone from the government shows up. Shows up. I'm here to help you. Yeah, that's a ridiculous thing too. So I, I think, you know, why don't we, we're just not being pragmatic. You said so much. I, let me make three quick points about this because what you just said is like this huge. So the first, let's let's strike a little note of optimism. Another little note, yeah, I'm just, Always trying to. So the one thing people don't appreciate, in fact, I didn't appreciate until I studied this history, was how much things change. So anybody's feeling a little pessimistic, let me do it this way. Motor back in the time machine, not that long ago, to the Dukakis uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush elections of 1980. Political age at 14. That was my. Ah, there you are. So it's not that long ago. So Dukakis knew a couple of things. One. There was no way he would ever win California because eight of the nine previous presidential elections, California went red. It's only the huge landslide against Goldwater. So California, completely red country. Nixon, Reagan country. right? Reagan country. Uh, Nixon country. Um, He also knew there was no way he could win Vermont. In 130 years, Vermont had voted Democratic once, and that's because James Monroe ran unopposed. But he knew he was going to win West Virginia. Knew he absolutely, and he did absolutely. And now you look and you think, wait, the two most democratic states in the country were beyond reach of the Democrats just a generation ago, and the most Republican state in the country was beyond the reach of the Republicans. So what I'm saying is, don't get too comfortable because everything's about to change. That's true. And to your point, politicos love this stuff, and I'm a political geek. So West Virginia, right, was Democratic in most. It's amazing. West Virginia voted for Jimmy Carter in 19. 19- 80 as he was losing. Okay. And Bill Clinton carried it twice. It was only from the 2000 election as that happened. And I want to point, make an overlap. I had a guest on named Richard Ojeda, who was wonderful earlier in the season. I highly recommend you listen to him. He's a West Virginia Republican turned Democrat who ran for the um, state. I was in the state house and whatever, but is a fiery Democrat now talking about how the Republican party strangles West Virginia, does nothing for poor people, doesn't care but what do but what do they do? God, guns, and gays, and black people. In other words, ultra wars in Appalachia. You know, this is this. They're not going to vote. They see the Demo- the Democrats hate coal, and the Democrats do have a message problem. They act like we're everyone's going to drive a Tesla and we're green energy, and coal miners are like, wait a second, I have no education, I don't know what to do. But at the same time, they see the Democrats as you know. Tommy. There's a throwaway line to your point. There's a throwaway line in Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s A Thousand Days, the story of the Kennedy administration. It's just in the middle. This book goes a million, goes like there's five pages for every day. So it's like 5,000 page book. But at one point, some guy from Appalachia, I think Kentucky, comes walking out. He's a Democrat, uh, a Democratic congressman. He's shaking his head. He goes, uh, he's just been to the Kennedy White House, you know, Jackie and all that. He goes, hey, that's too goddamn much chamber music for me. 
<laughs> he's still voting Democratic because his bread on the bread and butter issues, the Democrats came through with him. When they stop coming through on the bread and butter issues, he's still feeling it's too damn much chamber music, uh, you know, guns, uh, uh, religion, all that stuff. But it was always there. It's just the Democrats spoke to their pocketbook issues and so held them in place. But there was always a culture war going on. And now the culture war takes uh, takes precedent. You know, you said something before. And I want to I want to uh, say something else. Sure. Um, and that is. You know, one one of the other biggest surprises I had when writing this book was how dicey elections have always been in the United States. When you read the Constitution, they didn't care about elections. Those guys, they just said, let the states decide who's going to vote. Let the states decide who gets to vote for the electors who vote for the president. Just absolutely nothing in the Constitution. Let the states decide. And from the first contested election, it was all games with the states. So going back to 1800 for just a second, there's 16 states back then. Six of them changed the election rules during the election campaign. So even Virginia, Jefferson is running a Virginia in 1800. He writes the governor, Monroe, and he says, hey, wait, let's make it winner take all or I'll lose one of the electoral college votes. Monroe says, OK, they ram it through the legislature. They've changed the rule a couple of months before the election. Monroe who becomes president, James Monroe, right? Uh, who later becomes president. But they're cheating all the way down there. And in New York, they change twice. You know, they change it once to, to help the uh, to, to help Adams. And then things change and they try to change it again. They're spinning. So it's early gerrymandering in a way, kind of right? gerrymandering right from the start. I mean, it's it's famously in 1812, but they were gerrymandering. They gerrymandered the 1800 election. So one of the problems with our republic is that we've never taken seriously enough the election rules. And it's too, states get to decide what they want. And if they want to cheat, there's no barrier. I know. And now, you know, there are some barriers, of course. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But we're constantly permitted to have political games about the rules of politics. So some of them are set in stone, but an awful lot of them. You can see this in the Trump election. Uh, and you can see it since then as people are running for secretary of state and say, oh, I'm going to change the rules. Well, constitutionally, you're allowed to change the rules. And now that things have gotten so partisan, one of the things we got to do is just say, OK, guys, I don't care what the rules are. I don't care how you set them. Just have a set of rules that we all play by so that we have partisanship over arguments. And I am so with you. In 2020, when the, of course, COVID came and there was all the vote-by-mail stuff, which, by the way, I think seven states regularly since 2000, it was like Utah, Oregon, Washington State, had been voting by mail with comparatively no, little to no voter fraud, obviously. It never been a problem. I do think that federal um, oversight of elections is needed. That's why I was so upset that the uh, voting rights, uh, well, the For the People Act and the Voting Rights Bill weren't renewed for so many reasons. And that's all Republican, you know, racist obstruction. But I also wanted to say, it's the same reason that we have to rethink things that are not in the Constitution. For example, expand the court. I don't, this to me seems like a no brainer. And I'll tell you why. Or term limits. Well, term limits on every politician and every justice, every one of them, because this has become this can't be an annuity. But let me add one thing about the expand the court. I I believe in that because I believe in the limits of jurisprudence as policy, meaning just be our legislature has become so um, uh, egregiously uh, ineffective. Right. That's exactly it, Adam. Yes. So that Democrats 
rightfully so, and people like me who believe in freedom and liberty on all these social issues, panic when you get a Trump in there who gets three justices because of the damage they do. Look at what we just was just was leaked, and you know they're going to overturn Roe, which is a, which is an attack on the foundations. I wrote this this week. You'll appreciate this. If there's no right to privacy in this country, then there is no right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we don't have a country. So screw any, fuck anybody that thinks that somehow government that should be small should meddle in that world. I don't mean to go on a tangent, but I'm saying that the court should be bigger so that it has term limits and they don't decide every aspect of our foundational social policy. That this just shouldn't happen. As you and know. when they do, they bring real trouble on the court. I didn't know this but um, until I, I researched this book, but what happens in 1858? The court decides, you know what? We're going to take care of slavery for you. The whole country is up in arms. We're two years from the Civil War, right. and the court decides, Dred, Dred Scott, I know. you know what? Uh, slavery can expand into a- any territory. You can't stop it. Any and blacks are not a citizen. Blacks weren't citizens, right? That's the Roger, the Roger Tawney decision, right? Yeah, the Roger, uh, the Roger Tawney decision, exactly. So what does Lincoln say in his inauguration address? He says, if the court can decide an issue like this, the people have lost their say. And he calls for changes of the Supreme Court. What do the Republicans do when they take over? They expand the court. And uh, it goes up to 10 members. It goes down to seven members. They're saying we're not going to we're not going to put up with the Dred Scott decision. Absolutely. And, uh, and so people now don't remember that that, that that's been done. And it, it was the court's own fault. They lost a lot of influence um, uh, until after the Civil War and gained it again because Congress fell into fell into gridlock. But they lost an awful lot of influence by overreaching. And exactly as you said, I can't agree with you more. Uh, you know, two two brown guys, of course, they're going to agree with one another. When Congress gridlocks, then things do go to the courts. And, and Congress should be able to say, we don't like that decision. We are we are also a constitutional body. We are, are going to overrule your decision, which is perfectly constitutional. Right. We have three branches of government. And obviously, but take out the executive branch for a second. We have the legislature is designed right at its core to make the laws. The judiciary is the interpretive branch. And Republican conservatives and the Federalist Society and all that stuff, which I think is all bunk. I think originalism and that whole movement is absolute intellectual nonsense. I do. I think it's a pretext for bigotry and retrograde views. But I, I, I will say this. I cannot believe that because a legislature has become so dysfunctional, we now say, and this sounds Republican, but it's or conservative, that nine robed people are going to set the Samuel Alito writes this and literally takes away a, a fundamental right from women. I mean, this is not a, this is not people. These are not people's representatives. This is an activist court on the right. And it's and you know what I've said, too, is like, you know what, Democrats, you're always bemoaning 50 50 Senate and, and, you know, not enough justices. So win some more elections. Yeah. Meaning I know it's, it sounds sounds like easier said than done. But you know what? Get your act together. The Republicans, though, it's oftentimes nefarious, have a messaging discipline that is the envy of the political world, as you know. And our system is biased for the country. Yep. The rules are clear. You got to go out to the country and get some votes. You know, it's kind of, you got you to do it. And, and you know what, though? And this, this is, I argue, because they're not dirty, moderate enough. Don't go out. And when you have a huge, huge um, earthquake, social earthquake, like, a, like what happened to George Floyd and what ha- what's happened in police brutality, why on earth? Now, who sat in a room? I'm, let's get brass tacks here for a second, Jim, and said, 
God, there's there's systematic racism. Let's just defund the police. Let's get rid of police. I mean, that's not what they mean. But who came up with the minute you say that? Not only are you, of course, the white racist, the, the reactionary person hates that. You're scaring away the regular person that goes, well, what do you mean defund? What do you mean? Like, you know, but I think that one's a bit of a false flag operation in the sense that, you know, there's no one in there isn't a single Democratic senator who would say that this was a bunch of uh, people who are mobilizing in anger and a very, very clever Republican Party that said that. That we are going to make them wear it. Now, Democrats didn't know what to do. That's what I'm saying. If you still have to do, I have an expression I just came up with. If you want to do the policy, you got to do the politics. So all yeah. I'm saying is you didn't have to do, you didn't have to be um, racially exploitive in their politics. They just should have come up, whatever the term is, because it is the false flag. Just don't say that because yeah. you do need reform and a language like that, or well, right, the politics of the English language, that destroys a whole agenda. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you another great example. I was interviewing for, for, for my next book, President Obama, former President Obama. Yeah. And uh, and I said, OK, what did you get wrong? And he said, I should have made the argument more about Obamacare. I just thought the policy would speak for itself. And duh, just what you said, you can't make policy if you don't make politics. And he now knows it. But, you know, it's the same thing over and over again. I know. And, you know, you said something earlier about that. I, I, I that just was so right. People often come up and say, well, don't Americans share fundamental values? And I always say, yeah, there's one. The value of debate. You know, if you take take equality, take democracy, take liberty. There's lots of sides to it. Is liberty just a bunch of negative things? Libertarians say, yeah. Is liberty a bunch of positive things like we have to make sure people have enough to eat? So people on the left say, yeah, do we agree in liberty? We don't agree about liberty. What we agree on is let's have an argument and then make a compromise between those two. It's embedded in our DNA. Embedded in our DNA. And so stop pretending Democrats and Republicans. Oh, God, you've made me a you've made me a dirty moderate, Adam. So let's stop pretending. (laughs) All right. I'm going to I'm going to put this in the preface of my book. So let's stop pretending that you actually represent the only values that exist in America. The greatest, deepest value is argument over essential things. We've been doing that since day one. And guess what? That is um, the um, uh, raison d'etre of this whole podcast. The reason I created because of discourse, debate, reason, discord, discussing with people, having people on um, with whom I disagree or with people that I will push back on or for all of those reasons, because I always say, Listen, you and I are, have had such a robust conversation here, and we obviously know a lot, whatever. But what if we're wrong? In other words, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. impossible. You can't hold on to something it's so tightly. And I think, as you know, both sides are guilty of this. And even though I always push back and attack the Republicans for becoming such um, a authoritarian yeah. scumbag cult, the Trump Republicans, I should say. You know, the word, the thing that scares me, Jim, when I'm so happy there are young people who might reform the Republican Party. If we can hang on for 20 years. Yes, but I, what scares me is when progressives are just certain about everything. If we just had a Green New Deal, but I know it sounds, I understand it beats your liberal heart and others, but wait a second, slow down. You know, what are you talking about? What kind of social transformation are you um, what, what, what are you creating and what are going to be its impacts? You have to have a little bit of foresight and a little less dogma, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And a, con- a, a Congress, which is meant to be the world's greatest debating body, it's got to 
go back to debating. Now, there's one thing that's kind of interesting, which is if you go through American history, we've never had a period like this one where, where things shift as quickly. So since 2000, we have had 12 shifts in House, Senate, or presidency, unprecedented in American history. So if any party, any party takes over fairly, not by pretending that they won an election that they lost. In the legislature, in, in the change of Congress. In the change of Congress or the White House. You know, the old record was 1866 to 1896. All the one-termers, right? That All the one-termers in a row, you're absolutely right. And there were 10. And we used to say that was the most chaotic period in American history till the 1896 election. Well, we've now beaten them. This last election with the with the Senate flipping and and the White House flipping, that was a flips 11 and 12 since uh, since the year 2000. So, you know, that's one of the reasons it's so crazy is no one can get a majority. No one can get a majority. So I enthusiastically supported Joe Biden um, uh, for obvious reasons. I think people know. Um, and I, what's interesting is he was definitely the man to be Trump. He was the only Democrat, at least on that stage that I saw. So I was pleading with people, guys, we just pleased that this is not a year to dream. This is not a year to, you know, this isn't, we're not going to have fellow travelers this year. (laughs) We need to have like, you know, let's get, but I will tell you that I think he's doing a great job, but because he is a holdover from a more functional time when Congress, I think, was a little more, I mean, he's been there since Nixon, you know, a little more yeah. uh, efficient and equipped to handle the affairs. In some ways, he is the wrong man for the messaging time, which is why he's doing such good things and, he, and nobody knows it because in their, you know, the Republican attack machine isn't new. When people say, well, if I, it's what they did to Bill Clinton. Yeah. They, they, they yeah. thought Bill Clinton was illegitimate. I was my first vote. They couldn't stand him. They, they, you know, they said that Hillary was a murderer with Vince Foster. I mean, all this stuff. This isn't new as oh, I remember. eloquently lays out. Not everything old is new again in American political history. And the great question I keep, I keep asking everybody because I don't know the answer to this. So did our system hold in in the 2020 election, should we be celebrating the system in the sense that for the first time in American history, a loser by 7 million votes comes along and says, I won. And the courts say, no, you didn't. And whether it's Georgia or Arizona or Michigan, the Republicans hitched up their big boy pants and said, no, sorry, you you lost. You lost by a hair, but you lost Georgia by 11,000 votes. That's it. And so the system held. Or... You know, if you study strongmen around the world, usually what happens is they make a run at it. They fail. Erdogan in Turkey, for example, voted out of office and they figure it out. So are we about to see a system where in Georgia and Arizona and Michigan, Republicans are saying, no, no, we're, we're not going to certify an election. So I don't know if we're in the middle of a system that, you know, great system, thanks to federalism, thanks to all the checks and balances. It's a system that's working or if it's a system that's about to collapse. And I think we are about to live through the next three, four years, and um, we're going to find out. I will say this. I'm quoting a great legal scholar uh, who is one of my best friend's father. His name is William Nelson, NYU law professor. Very Oh, yeah, William Nelson, sure. Yeah, he's a 
been in my life for a long time, expert on the 14th Amendment, and his preface to his new book, which is basically American legal history, an overview, kind of what you did, but through cases. Through legal, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And readable for everybody, you know, not just for a five That's lawyers, good. not just for yeah. five lawyers at Harvard and Yale. Oh. So, uh, yeah. And he said the rule, the reason he's so um, has been committed to being to law and history and, and re- his, my, my best friend who is, he rescued from an Iranian orphanage, his son, he rescued oh. from war in Guatemala. Yeah. And the re- so what he says though, which I'm answering your question and, and sort of trying to tie it all together here, though, does the system hold? I will answer with Bill's quote, the rule of law is a conservative value. Oh, I, and, and so fundamental. Yes. I think that what you can answer your question Lying about a presidential election, which we've never seen before, empowering secretaries of state and state legislatures to be corrupt is not only is it an attack on the fundamental uh, character of America and the rule of law, it is actually um, a um, unconservative value. You know, they're not conservative. They're not conserving anything. They're actually incinerators. Right. These are people who want um, to uh, to basically see. Our system of democratic small d government, government, governance and government um, self-implode. You know, there's a wonderful line, speaking of quotes, uh, that I've thought about a lot in the last couple of years. It's from A Man for All Seasons, where uh, someone, yeah, someone comes up, a roper comes up to Thomas More, and he says, in the middle of an exchange, I would tear down every law in England to get at the devil, which is a great metaphor for how a lot of people are thinking about politics these days. And Thomas More turns to him and says, uh, and when the devil turns around and turns on you, what will protect you? Every law being down. And I think whether you're an ardent Democrat or an ardent Republican or a dirty moderate, the rule of law is all we got. By the way, that sounds like it could be a stand-in for, I want to own the libs so badly, I'm going to destroy the country to do it, which is one thing. But I'll tell you what I always say, and I actually direct it at the left, but I'm going to apply it uh, to the same thing. I always say this to everybody. I say it applies to me, applies to everybody. The revolution came for Robespierre, too. Yeah, right. Don't forget You know, yeah. I yes. know you didn't. If I say that to people when they get dogmatic. That revolution. If you start tearing, and by the way, I'm not a, a, a supporting the French monarchy or the church. That's not what I mean. But I mean, you there are there. Are, you have to be cautionary and um, uh, somewhat circumspect about revolution. Uh, revolutionary rage, you know. One one thing that hasn't come up, it's not in my book very much, is the role of business. All of a sudden, you start reading things that say. Um, a business is suddenly getting political. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> business has been at the heart of politics. Who do you think? Who sued the Obama, uh, Obamacare legislation? It was the Federation of Small Business. But if you're a business person, you know, I heard a great story where a, a major corporation, corporate board, I knew someone who was on a corporate board. I won't mention the board. And, um, and the head of the board said in 2016, right after the election, how do you feel about this election? And they all went around and every person said the same thing. Uh, they said, uh, you know, I know Donald Trump, there's a lot of problems with it. And it makes me a little nervous, but hey, we're going to get lower taxes. We're going to get fewer regulations. I have to admit, I voted for him. Goes all the way around the room. And my friend who's sitting right next to the CEO, they uh, says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you have just said that you've hired a national CEO, for a national CEO, someone you would never, ever hire for your company. And that's going to be a problem. And now we see the problem. So my 
you know, we need every institution in America, starting with business. Business is like, oh, oh, no, no, we're not really woke. Hey, those laws protect you. Without the rule of law, we're Russia. You know, it's just like the strongest takes whatever. So everybody needs to stand up over the next four years and just say, no, no, you got to count every vote. When business stands up, you know, everybody backs off. Right, which is what's so valuable, folks, about uh, Jim's book, as we're going to close out here in just a few minutes, about his book, Republic of Wrath, is that, and I say this to you, I'm so happy about that I've had you on and was able to read this book, is that partisanship has always been there. Is your Always. Always roiled uh, American um, political and social life. But what's different, right, is this isn't partisanship. This is... This is um, a, um, a taking a torch, if you will, you know what I mean? Not as a Democrat, as a Republican, but just to burn it down. And that is, I think, I think that's why we're at this intersection. We're at an intersection, in my opinion, of absolute malice and abundant stupidity. And what's different, what's different again, to just give my punchline is that somehow we've gotten a party that's actually a white people's party, though there's lots of other strains in it. And a party with lots of different immigrants, African-Americans and so forth. And, you know, that's a dangerous situation because it's become in an era when there's fear that white population will no longer be the uh, majority after after 400 years of the majority. There's there are people who feel like we're going to lose the country, burn down everything. But no, no, you're burning down what's precious. So Republicans go out there and fight for the black and Latino and Asian votes that you used to have. The Republicans, as they've shrunk into a minority white party, that's what their voters want. Imagine in the last 20 years, I'm not saying people should have voted for George W. Bush or not. I'm saying, imagine if, um, and I'm gay, for example, where I was always like, I got I can't vote for anyone who's against gay rights. And, you know, post-Oberfell has been six years, seven years. Now they may go after that. Imagine yeah. though, if the Republicans had to answer to black and Latino and Asian and gay voters, they would not be, if there was balance in our system, they wouldn't be able to do this. They wouldn't yeah. be able, there would be repercussions politically to their power, which is all they care about, is so so it seems, and that's what they're doing. They know they can sca- keep scaring the shit out of a sixty-seven-year-old white guy yeah, out yeah. of Wilmington, Indiana, and get votes. Yeah, yeah. And the the most important thing you said, maybe right at the start, was well, why did that party go after those that vote? Well, why did that party accept immigrants? Because the immigrants voted for them. But you know, you're not a passive receptacle. Go get them, because uh, unless you do. We're we're a heap of trouble. But to end on that happy note, I I have a lot of hope for the younger generation. You know, I I look at the twenty five year olds and they they just have good values. They don't they don't want you know same sex marriage big issue for people who are seventy. Really, still a big issue for the kids. It's like. What? What are you talking about? You look back at it the way I looked back at the black and white pictures of segregated lunch counters. Yeah, exactly. What? And I think when that generation moves in, if they don't change and that, and if they vote, that's the big key. Yeah, if they get involved, um, I think we're going to see a lot of change, and we'll we'll see those changes. And we'll say, well, that was obvious. We we saw that obviously was going to happen, but it, it's it's not obvious until it happens. That's right, James Jim Marone. I'm going to call you because I liked you so much. I want to thank you for being on the podcast, folks. Again, can't say enough good things. 
Republic of Wrath is the name of the book. The subtitle is How America, How American Politics Turned Tribal from George Washington to Donald Trump. Uh, James Marone is a professor, again, of political science and public policy at Brown University, my alma mater. I so thank him for being here. Oh. I hope listeners know that, you know, we, uh, we both believe in uh, critical thinking, you know, and, and that's one of the missions at Brown is one of the things I loved about it so much. And um, I think bringing that aspect, you know, letting that knowledge be distilled among so many people who are not attuned, not just to history, Jim, but to American political history. Your book is uh, much more than a guide. I think it's an essential roadmap. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. This has been amazing fun to be on with a host as lively and and smart and opinionated as you. This was really a treat for me. That's what we do here at Dirty Moderate. All right, folks. Thanks for listening, Jim. Thanks again. We'll see you next uh, time. All right. Thanks, Adam. I'll be watching next time, so I'll be in the audience. I'm sure it'll be a great show.